Section 45 of Final Report of the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Final Report of the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments. Case Studies, Chapter 8, Part 5. AEC-sponsored TBI at Oak Ridge. At the same time that the University of Cincinnati was conducting TBI experiments for the Department of Defense, DOD, the medical division of the AEC's Oak Ridge Institute of Nuclear Studies, ORANS, was also treating patients with selected tumors with TBI. Retrospective and prospective analyses of these data were supported by the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. ORANS was established in the late 1940s as a research institution to help advance the field of nuclear medicine through research, training, and technology development. From 1957 to 1974, the ORANS Hospital treated 194 patients with TBI. In contrast with the DOD-sponsored experiments at Cincinnati and other institutions, ORANS ORAU used TBI only to treat patients with radiosensitive cancers. Indeed, in 1972, the ORAU Medical Program Review Committee issued a report on the ORAU-TBI activities in light of the recent revelations about the University of Cincinnati TBI program, noting that the studies were ethically conducted and that survival rates were as good as with other methods of treatment. Nevertheless, similar questions have been raised about the dual-purpose nature of the Oak Ridge program. As happened at Cincinnati, the Oak Ridge TBI experiments, although known in the national and international medical and scientific communities through presentations and publications, first came to the attention of the general public through the news media. In September 1981, Mother Jones magazine published an article charging that Orens ORAU treated its patients with total body irradiation in order to collect data for NASA. The article focused on one patient in particular, Duane Sexton, who suffered from acute lymphocytic leukemia and was treated with TBI and chemotherapy over the course of three years, until he died in 1968. That article prompted an investigation and public hearing by the Investigations and Oversight Subcommittee of the House Science and Technology Committee, which was chaired by Representative Albert Gore. Testifying before the subcommittee were patients and patient relatives, administrative officials from Oak Ridge, the AEC and NASA, the medical staff of ORAU, and two cancer experts, Dr. Peter Wiernick, director of the Baltimore Cancer Research Center, and Dr. Eli Glatstein, who was then Chief of Radiation Oncology at the National Cancer Institute, and is now a member of the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments. Orens began treating patients with TBI in 1957. Following a 1958 accident at the Oak Ridge Y-12 production plant, 
in which eight workers were irradiated and treated by Oren's Hospital, Oren's took a heightened interest in the use and effects of TBI. As William R. Bibb, then director of the Department of Energy's Research Division at Oak Ridge, testified at the Gore hearing, in order to provide the best possible care in case of an accident, the AEC expected that hematologic data from patients being treated with total body irradiation, in addition to being used to benefit other patients, would also be used to benefit any radiation accident victim. In 1960, the Orens Hospital completed a newly designed irradiation facility that could deliver a uniform dose to all portions of the body, without having to move the patient, known as the Medium Exposure Total Body Irradiator, METBI. The METBI facility delivered approximately 1.5 rad per minute. Several years later, Orens sought to test the hypothesis that exposure to low doses of radiation over an extended period of time would be more effective than a single administration of a similar total radiation dose to the whole body in treating certain types of diffuse tumors known to be responsive to radiation. Accordingly, it developed the low-exposure total body irradiator, let by, as a one-of-a-kind system to test this hypothesis. Let by, which could deliver a whole-body radiation dose of 1.5 rad per hour, went into operation in 1967, and patients could spend several days or weeks in this facility. AEC sponsored all activities concerned with the construction and operation of the let-by and its use in patient treatment. The results of this treatment approach, however, were found to be no better than others then available, and the use of the let-by was discontinued in the early 1970s. The let-by project was conceived at approximately the same time that NASA had commissioned Orens to study the effects of total body irradiation. NASA was particularly interested in the effects of low-dose-rate radiation that the let-by would produce, because astronauts would most likely be exposed to low-dose cosmic radiation. Accordingly, NASA provided approximately $65,000 to the AEC for monitoring equipment and the radiation sources used for the let-by. At the Gore hearing, officials from the AEC and NASA testified that the let-by program was conceived purely for therapeutic purposes, and that NASA's interest in the data from the let-by exposures in no way influenced the decision to construct the facility or its use for patients. Dr. Clarence Lushbau, who ran the let-by facility under Dr. Gould Andrews, and succeeded Andrews as director of the ORAU Medical Division, testified, First, neither NASA nor AEC program monitors, to my knowledge, ever attempted to become involved directly or indirectly with the treatment of patients at the Orens ORAU Medical Division. Second, the Orens ORAU NASA study group never influenced the clinicians in their selection of patients or the prescription of the exposure dose and dose rates. There was little dispute with the view of the 1972 Medical Program Review Committee expressed above 
that at least in the early years tbi was a legitimate form of treatment worth exploring for the radiosensitive cancers that orens orau was treating the review committee's concern was whether the oak ridge medical staff conducted their investigations in an effective manner and whether the aec's or nasa's interest in the data compelled the continuation of this modality at a time when other forms of treatment were considered more effective. Dr. Peter H. Wiernick, one of the two expert witnesses, acknowledged, for example, that in the early years it was legitimate to experiment with TBI at the high doses being used to try to improve treatment, because clearly treatment needed to be advanced in those days. The record of the 1972 review suggests that the Orens ORAU staff did not engage in the type of rigorous systematic research that would be necessary to evaluate the usefulness of that type of therapy. The Oak Ridge doctors acknowledged that they were not evaluating the long-term effectiveness of single-exposure high-dose TBI, and that fractionated exposures in which numerous smaller doses are given over a period of several weeks or months, probably offers a preferable approach for total body irradiation therapy. Dr. Lushbaugh explained that because the doctors would administer whatever treatment they thought was best for each patient, they did not adhere to an established research protocol based exclusively on TBI. In commenting on the 1972 report before the Gore Committee, Dr. Glatstein questioned the manner of administration and the uncontrolled nature of the studies. Oncology research, he said, requires an obsession with time, the effect that a given treatment has over months or years. Glatstein noted that the reports he reviewed are interesting in terms of acute radiation effects, but really don't have any substance in terms of oncologic practice. Gladstein summarized his view of the Orens ORAU TBI research program. If you're talking about the early 60s, I think this is probably fairly representative of protocols that were going on at that time. By the end of that decade, I believe that this was probably not acceptable. Both Wiernick and Glatstein criticized Duane Sexton's medical non-radiation treatment, in particular the decision to withhold maintenance chemotherapy, which was recognized as an effective treatment at that time, in order to attempt a never-before-used experimental procedure. Even if the new treatment was worth pursuing, they argued, it should have been done only as part of a larger protocol and only when the patient was in secondary remission following the failure of more effective treatments. All patients accepted into the Orens ORAU hospital program signed a patient's admittance agreement that explained that the hospital operated for the purpose of conducting radiation-related research. The form stated that the patient is being admitted because his physical condition makes me a suitable patient for our currently active clinical research project, that experimental examinations, treatments, and tests may be prescribed, for which the patient hereby gives his or her consent, and that the patient can remain in the research hospital only so long as I am needed for research purposes. 
additional forms were used to establish consent for experimental treatment, which stated that the nature and purpose of the treatment, possible alternative methods of treatment, the risks involved, and the possibilities of complications have been explained to me. I understand that this treatment is not the usual treatment for my disorder, and is therefore experimental and remains unproven by medical experience, so that the consequences may be unpredictable. The form made no mention of the possible risk of death from bone marrow suppression, or specific side effects such as nausea or vomiting. In 1974, the AEC conducted a program review of the medical division of ORAU. It recommended that the clinical TBI programs be closed, having found that the MetBi and LetBi programs had evolved without adequate planning, criticism, or objectives, and have achieved less in substantial productivity than Merritt's continued support. At the end of his hearing, Gore noted that the subcommittee would issue a report with conclusions and recommendations. Although no formal report was ever completed, the full committee issued the following statement in January 1983. The subcommittee testimony revealed that while many of the conditions at ORAU were not satisfactory, particularly when judged by the routine institutional safeguards and medical knowledge of today, the more scandalous allegations could not be substantiated. Given the standards of informed consent at that time and the state of nuclear medicine, the experiments were satisfactory, but not perfect. Perhaps the most striking contrast between philosophies of the Oak Ridge and the University of Cincinnati TBI programs can be gleaned from an exchange that occurred in 1966. That year, the AEC's Medical Program Review Committee suggested that ORAU consider using TBI for treatment of radio-resistant cancers, similar to what was being done at Cincinnati. The ORAU physicians responded that they had carefully considered treating such diseases, but had declined to do so. We are very hesitant to treat them because we believe there is so little chance of benefit to make it questionable ethically to treat them. Lesions that require moderate or high doses of local therapy for benefit, or that are actually resistant, gastroenteric tract, are not helped enough by total body radiation to justify the bone marrow depression that is induced. Of course, in one way, these patients would make good subjects for research, because their hematologic responses are more nearly like those of normals than are the responses of patients with hematologic disorders. Conclusion when we began our work, the controversy surrounding the Cincinnati TBI research had been rekindled. There was, however, little public awareness that Cincinnati was the last in the line of many years of sponsorship of similar TBI-related research by the Defense Department and other federal agencies. The ethical issues raised by the Cincinnati case are made more acute by the fact that both the government and the medical community already had had decades of experience with TBI, although comparatively less experience with cobalt-60 as a means to deliver higher doses than had been delivered in the earlier era. 
this history provides compelling evidence of the importance of the rules that regulate human subject research today prior review of risks and potential benefits requirements of disclosure and consent and procedures for ensuring equity in the selection of subjects the history also highlights four issues in the ethics of research with human subjects that are as important today as they were then issues that are not easily resolved or even addressed by present-day rules as discussed below these issues are one how to protect the interests of patients when physicians use medical interventions that are not standard care two the effects and attendant obligations of the government when it funds research involving patient subjects three the impact on patients when research is combined with medical care and four what constitutes fairness in the selection of subjects for research the first issue is how best to protect the interests of patients when physicians propose to use medical interventions that are not standard care today when non-standard interventions are part of a formal research project the interests of the patient are protected in theory by the institutional review board which is charged with determining that the risks of the non-standard intervention are acceptable in light of available alternatives and the prospect for benefit patients are also protected by the requirement of informed consent which is intended to allow the potential patient subject to assess whether the balance of risks to potential benefits is acceptable there is no federally mandated parallel irb mechanism of review however when a medical intervention that is experimental or innovative or even controversial is to be used outside the confines of a research project although some institutions voluntarily have adopted mechanisms of peer review the requirement of informed consent remains the physician is obligated to inform the patient that the proposed intervention is not standard practice whether it is controversial within the field and how it compares with alternative approaches but this requirement provides the patient less protection than would a professional peer review at the time of the tbi studies none of these mechanisms were well developed during the cincinnati project irbs were in their infancy and the convention of obtaining informed consent from patient subjects was just emerging the record is confused and confusing as to whether and when tbi at cincinnati was viewed as part of a cancer research project and thus properly the subject of irb review it is not clear whether the treatment of the cincinnati patients with tbi was initially intended to be research in the practice of medicine there has always been a fine boundary between practices or treatments that are accepted as standard those that are innovative and those that are experimental or the subject of research the use of tbi at cincinnati is emblematic of the difficulties inherent in sorting through these categories by the mid-1960s, TBI, without bone marrow protection, was a treatment that had been tried and had not been proven effective for patients with radioresistant cancers. 
By this time, total body irradiation was not standard treatment for such cases. Nor could it be called innovative treatment. Some at the time considered its continued use in patients with radio-resistant cancers to be controversial. The history of medicine, however, is replete with instances in which failure is followed by success. The continued use of TBI in patients with radio-resistant cancers would not have been unethical if the physicians had established clear benchmarks for determining how much additional use was warranted, and if the patients had been informed of the speculative nature of the treatment and the gravity of the risks involved. It is not clear that either of these things occurred. What is clear is that neither the university's IRB nor the funding agency reviewed the appropriateness of continuing to treat patients with radio-resistant cancers using TBI without bone marrow protection, despite mounting evidence casting doubt on the utility of TBI treatment for radio-resistant tumors in the absence of bone marrow protection. It is also clear that the consent forms did not disclose that it was by this time at best unconventional to treat patients with radio-resistant cancers with TBI, and that no other medical centers were engaged in this practice at the time. Whether physicians told this to their patients is not known. The system of checks and balances that is usually in place today to protect patients' interests was in its early phase at the University of Cincinnati, and the system did not work well at the time. The responsibility for failure rests at all levels, but it is reasonably clear that patient protection was compromised. Today, as in the past, there are occasions when non-standard medical interventions are not subject to human research regulations. In such situations, neither IRB review nor the rigors of scientific design are in place to help determine whether an experimental intervention should continue to be used. Today, for example, many innovations in reproductive technologies and surgery proceed with little oversight and few constraints on the practices of physicians. A physician wishing to use an intervention that other colleagues in the field believe to be ineffective or inferior, as was arguably the case with TBI and radio-resistant tumors after several years in the Cincinnati program, will find little standing in his or her way to do so, save the fear of malpractice claims, and increasingly the likelihood that such interventions will not be reimbursed, particularly in managed care settings. The Cincinnati experience underscores the importance of, one, establishing benchmarks for judging the propriety of continued use, and, two, providing for special disclosures to patients in all cases where interventions are not standard, without regard for whether that intervention is deemed human subject research or is governed by the common rule. See Chapter 3. The question of what role the Department of Defense should have played in reviewing the appropriateness of TBI as medical care for the patient subjects in its biological dosimetry and radiation effects research points to the second major issue illustrated by our review of the TBI history. Arguably, the ultimate responsibility for determining that TBI was acceptable medical practice 
rested with the physicians at Cincinnati, and with the university and associated hospitals. At the same time, however, thirty years of government interest in the effects of TBI also arguably had a significant influence on medical practice. From one vantage, the DOD had little or no obligation to consider the value of TBI to the patients who provided the data it was seeking. The DOD was not paying for the irradiation of the patients. It had reason to assume that the decision about the propriety of the treatment would be made by doctors whose judgment in the matter could be trusted. Yet the TBI experience illustrates that when government funds research, particularly over a long period, its funding may well have effects beyond the simple conduct of the science, and well beyond the confines of the strict terms stated in the contracts or grants authorizing the research. Over the course of three decades, there was a substantial coincidence between the use of TBI on patients with radio-resistant cancers and funding from the Department of Defense and its predecessor. With the exception of work conducted at the City of Hope Hospital, every journal article in the professional literature on the use of TBI with radio-resistant tumors during this period was reporting on work supported by the government for military purposes. In the case of Cincinnati, Dr. Sanger told the advisory committee in 1994 that the irradiation of patients might not have been initiated if it were not for the funding by the DOD, and, once initiated, might not have been continued if the objective sought by the DED, a biological dosimeter, had been realized early on. As Dr. Sanger explained, while the DOD did not directly pay for irradiation, its funding provided for other items, including laboratory equipment and specialists, that facilitated the initiation and maintenance of the TBI program. Even where the medical care of patients is peripheral to the interests of a funding agency, so long as the research supported by the agency is to be conducted on patient subjects, it is likely that the research will affect the care patients receive. This is particularly true when agencies support research programs extending over many years, as was the case with the Department of Defense and TBI. Such programs can motivate physician investigators to alter their practice and can stimulate the adoption of different approaches to the care of patients. Although there is today a greater appreciation of the impact on medical practice of funding patterns in research, it is not clear even now that funding agencies regularly think through the implications for medical care of the research programs they support, or that they monitor the impact on patients of their programs over time. That the joining of research with medical care can alter what happens to a patient is the third issue in research ethics illustrated by the TBI experience. Each purpose introduced into the clinical setting in addition to the treatment of the patient increases the likelihood that the patient will receive more, fewer, or different medical interventions than he or she would otherwise receive. It is naive to think that either today or thirty years ago research can be grafted on to the clinical setting without changing the experience for the patient, now turned subject. 
when the demands of science alter the standard medical practice by increasing the monitoring of physiological indicators the additional blood tests or bone scans or biopsies are frequently presented as in the interest of patient subjects sometimes this claim is defensible and the patient subjects are indeed advantaged by the more careful monitoring of their medical condition at other times however this claim is an insupportable rationalization and there are no offsetting benefits to patients for the risks and discomforts associated with the additional monitoring in the case of the cincinnati experiments the impact of the research protocol on the care of the patient subjects cannot be construed as beneficial to the patients in addition there is evidence of the subordination of the ends of medicine to the ends of research the decisions to withhold information about possible acute side effects of tbi as well as to forego pretreatment with antiemetics were irrefutably linked to advancing the research interests of the DOD. To the extent that this deviated from standard care and caused unnecessary suffering and discomfort, it was morally unconscionable. To the extent that the standard of care in this area is uncertain, it is morally questionable. As troubling as this is, far more troubling is the evidence, including the testimony of the principal investigator, that tbi might not have been employed as a treatment for the patients or once employed continued in the absence of the government's funding and research requirements whether the ends of research understood as discovering new knowledge and the ends of medicine understood as serving the interests of the patient necessarily conflict and how the conflict should be resolved when it occurs are still today open and vexing issues increasingly advocates for patients with serious chronic diseases such as aids and breast cancer maintain that it is often in the interest of patients to participate as subjects in clinical research these advocates are particularly concerned to ensure fair access to participation in research for people who are politically less powerful such as the poor, minorities, and women. This contemporary perspective upends the traditional way of viewing the fourth issue in research ethics raised by the TBI experiments, fairness in the selection of subjects. At both M.D. Anderson Hospital and the University of Cincinnati, almost all the patients were drawn from public hospitals, and many were African Americans. It was common during this period for medical research to be conducted on the poor and the powerless. In part, this practice reflected a general societal insensitivity to questions of justice and equal treatment. In this case, people who were poor disproportionately bore the burdens of questionable research to which their interests as ill people were subordinated. The practice also reflected the view, however, that poor people were better off being patients at hospitals affiliated with research-oriented medical schools, where they were likely to become the subjects of research, as well as subject matter for clinical teaching. Such institutions, it was thought, offered poor people their best and perhaps their only chance to secure quality medical care. 
Recently, this kind of reasoning has emerged again as constraints on access to medical care, from the narrowing of entitlement programs to the narrowing of coverage in managed care medical plans, have made participation in research, as a route to medical care, more attractive. The question of whether the side benefits of being a subject should be weighted in the review of the risks and potential benefits of research remains unresolved today. These findings highlight the contemporary resonance of the TBI story. The issues discussed above are either not now addressed or not addressed adequately by regulation. Neither are they covered by clear conventions or rules of professional ethics. Thus, the history of TBI research sponsored by the government is important not only for what it tells us about our past, but also for how it illuminates the present. End of section 45. Recording by Maria Casper.